sermon series on being exiles, resident aliens, which is how the Bible describes the life of Christians who live in the nations of the world while we wait to be in our true home. Uh, we're not exiled from a former country, most of us. We're not exiled from a former time in this country that we are fond of. We're exiled from heaven, from the new creation that Jesus is making. And so that means that we're never at home here. So for the Christian experience, no matter where you live, no matter how much you like your country uh, and the place that you live, you always kind of have the sense of, I'm not from here, I just live here. And that means necessarily that you're going to feel odd sometimes. Uh, the idea isn't that we'd be super prickly and that we'd always be uh, shining a light on the differences and things between people around us and what we believe and think and that we'd always be in for a fight. Um, you know, the, we're told kind of be ambassadors instead. We're supposed to be kind of on a diplomatic mission rather than being resistance fighters or something like that. Our message is reconciliation. So, you know, best we can, we're trying to go along to get along. Right, and not uh, be unnecessarily provocative or obnoxious with people, uh, trying to affirm good things around us that we can like and take part where we can and get along as well as we can with people. But there's always a rub somewhere. If you're a Christian believer, no matter where and when you live, there are going to be things about your culture that are abrasive to your faith. And at some point, there are going to be places where you have to draw lines. And... Um, some people take a lot of delight in drawing those lines, and that's not what we're called to do. But sometimes you have to draw the lines. And the passage we're going to look at today in Daniel 3 is the story of, it's pretty famous if you've been around church much, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were being asked to bow down to some sort of a quasi-religious political idol that King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had made. And it was one of the places where, even though they weren't looking for trouble, they had to say, no, we can't do that. And it made them seem weird, and it made everyone mad at them. And it turns out that that's kind of normal in the life of a believer, and it's okay, ultimately, uh, that you feel weird sometimes, and that you have to say no sometimes. And so that's what we're going to think about together. We think about their story and kind of uh, lay it over our story and try to understand what does it mean for us to actually live as Christian believers in the place where God has scattered us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, please um, come and help us as we listen to your word and think about it. Uh, we don't need just more information in our heads, but we want you to do your work in our lives so that we can know you. Uh, so come, then please and speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Start in verse 1 of Daniel 3 and go down to verse 18. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth was 6 cubits. That's about 100 feet by 10 feet. I think. Uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, satraps, prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the ded dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the dragon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the instruments must fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. He brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar addressed them and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the instruments and the music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. They have a political problem or a religious problem here? It's hard to say. It doesn't even say what the statue is. I mean, it might be a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Um, but it could just as easily be Marduk or one of the Babylonian gods that are basically like the sponsor gods of that uh, political system. So it's just kind of a, it's a double problem. You know, some people will approach their politics in a very religious way, and some people will approach their religion in a very political way, and Nebuchadnezzar seems to be both of those. Right? I don't know if he believes much at all, but he uh, uses people's religious beliefs sort of to, uh, he co-ops them into his enterprise and his political life. So they're stuck with kind of hit from both sides, politically and religiously, with this. Um, and this happens with Christians a lot. In the early Roman Empire, a lot of the persecution came because of the Christians' attitude towards Caesar. Like, they trying to be good citizens, but they just couldn't be part of the imperial cult worship and stuff, and so they got in trouble. Happened in the 1930s in Germany, a famous pastor, Paul Schneider, was a Lutheran minister, and as National Socialism took on momentum, he was one of the confessing church pastors who wouldn't uh, have the Christian faith co-opted into a political movement. And, of course, this brought a lot of trouble for him. You know, the, the uh, National Socialists, as they came to power, were okay with uh, religious freedom as long as the state was ultimate. So if you were a German Christian, then that's fine, because everybody knows if you put an adjective with Christian, the adjective tends to win. You know, so you're going to be more German than Christian. So, but he wouldn't do it, and he got in trouble because of it. He got arrested several times, had six kids, and had to uh, leave them when he was arrested. He wound up in Buchenwald, finally, in the early days of the concentration camp, like 1937. And basically, they said, 
it's a really weird situation. So we'll let you go as soon as you uh, sign a paper renouncing your pastorate and promising to move out of this German state, Rhineland, the one that you're in. And he wouldn't do it. He said, one, because it's an illegal order, and two, because he didn't want to leave his congregation to the kind of pastor that the Nazis would put in in his place afterwards. And so there came a day on 38th, it's Hitler's birthday, the prisoners were all uh, lined up in the camp, told to stand and take off their hats and venerate the uh, swastika flag, which was kind of the, you know, represented the gods of the Nazi pantheon, and everybody did it except him. And uh, so he was beaten and put in solitary confinement for 15 months. Only bread and water, wasn't allowed to have a Bible, and he was regularly tortured until they finally executed him uh, just before World War II started. He came to a place like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where he said, I just, I just have to say no. Here, I can't do this. And um, you know, he learned kind of what they learned uh, through their experience here. And that is, you have a prior loyalty as a believer that supersedes your other loyalties. And at some point, that's going to matter. And you're going to have to draw a line. And when you do, people probably aren't going to like it. It's the other thing they learned. But then lastly, they learn that's probably okay. Right. You're going to have to draw lines. People aren't going to like it, but it's probably okay. And so we're going to think about this story in light of those three things. First of all, if you have a prior loyalty, and eventually you have, it means you have to draw some lines. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar seems like most political leaders we know. You know, he has kind of an odd attitude towards religion. It's sort of like, that can be useful to me as long as you're compliant to me. You know, um, as long as your ultimate loyalty is to your country, not to your faith, then I'm pretty happy with your religion. You know, the Roman Empire approached things that way. Um, long as, as long as you love your country as much or more than you love Jesus, then you can worship Jesus all you want to. And um, so they ran into this trouble realizing, well, but we can't, we can't have our priority that way. I mean, our priority loyalty has to be to God himself. And I know that's going to make us weird in certain places. But think about like um, Eastern Orthodoxy. And I'm going to way overgeneralize here, but um, it's homiletical license, we call that. But the complaint about Eastern Orthodoxy you hear from missionaries in Ukraine and Russia is not that uh, the faith has been badly compromised doctrinally in those churches. It's that those churches have been co-opted politically so that they're arms of the state. And they lost their effectiveness as Christian churches in many cases because they've been willing to be brought in to a political pantheon. And this is kind of what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, there are people from all kinds of nations around the world who are there who had worshipped all different kind of gods, and they'd all been conquered by the Babylonians. And now Nebuchadnezzar sets up the idol and says, now everybody has to bow uh, to my idol, to my statue. And um, everybody did. <laughs> they all did. I don't know why they did. What they probably did was like, yeah, we bow down to your, your idols, okay. You know, cross fingers. Like, of course we don't mean it. I don't even think you mean it. I think... You just want to bully us and say, I compelled you to bow. You know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to really believe in anything other than Nebuchadnezzar. But he's forcing them to compel and compelling them to bow because he 
finds joy in that, apparently. Um, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there saying, look, nobody else takes this seriously either, really. All we got to do is just say the words. It's nothing. Cross our fingers, you know. Um, and, you know, we've got jobs in the administration here that enable us to do a lot of good for the Jews, for God's people. And we, we really can protect our people better if we don't lose those jobs over some minor prickly point of conscience. Uh, why don't we just go on and get along here? And I'm sure that would have been very tempting for them, but that's not what they did. Um, because basically they said, what's the nature of our faith? Right? The first commandment is that you'll have no other gods before me. It's not unclear. Right? This is the thing. There's one God, and your relationship to him is a, is a relationship of ultimate loyalty, and that's not negotiable. Right? You know, Jesus doubled down on this when he talked about it. He said things like, you can't, you can't even put your trust in money and God. Like It's an either-or. It's a loyalty test. You can't even love your family <laughs> compared to your relationship with me. You know, Jesus said, you have, if you want to come follow me, you have to hate your father and mother and come follow me. Which is very dramatic. Especially dramatic to use on the thing my mother's here. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> but man, if your money and your, your family are loyalty tests, your country's going to be too, right? And so, you know, the, the prior loyalty is always going to create lines where you have to choose one against the other and... Um, our loyalty has to be to Jesus. It's like a marriage connection, forsaking all others and clinging only unto you kind of situation. It, so it makes it hard, even if you have a nice attitude and you want to be a go-on-to-get-along person, which I hope you do, um, there are times when you can't. And it's usually really hard. Because everybody around you thinks you're weird if you do it. Right? I mean, like, why are you making a case... Every, Everybody knows we don't mean this. We've all got our fingers crossed. Why do you got to be so prickly? You know, how come you got to make this point of confidence? You know, you're being strange. And you may get us all in trouble. You know, so you're either looked at like maybe quirky like the Amish or something. And I mean, I don't care if you want to drive a horse and buggy, but you know, don't be weird. But on the other, you know, to the other extreme is, you know, silence, I will kill you, you know, because you're disagreeing. I'm, I'm making a fiery furnace for you. And that's kind of where Nebuchadnezzar got. Um, but you kind of have to come to terms with that. Um, it's going to make you an odd person to follow with any kind of real faithfulness to Jesus and live in the world we live in. It'd be just as true if we live somewhere else. Uh, we're exiles in the world and we have a prior loyalty. And people don't like it, which is the second point. Um, people don't like it. Nebuchadnezzar especially didn't like it. You talk about something escalating fast. In verse 5 he says, you know, when you hear the music you bow down and worship the idol. And whoever doesn't will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. <laughs> wow. Um, he's serious about this. He's taking it very personally if people won't bow down to his idol. You know, he's, of course, you've seen this, you've gotten known through this book, but he's, he's uh, full of hubris and therefore he's unwise. He's in a situation now where he prefers committing mass murder to losing face. So he's a fool, right? He would rather commit mass murder than lose face in front of a crowd. And, of course, that's what pride does to us. But he overplays his hand in verse 15. Did you hear what he said there when he said, I'm going to throw you in the furnace, and who is the God 
who will deliver you out of my hands? And uh, that's where he said, ooh, you shouldn't have said that, right? Um, I don't think he believes, he doesn't think that Marduk is going to judge them for not bowing down. He's like, Marduk is my sponsor for my political power. I'm the one whose hand you need to be delivered out of, not his. But I've already conquered your God. I, I brought stuff from the temple and put it in my temple. And so I don't think I don't think that your God is going to deliver you out of my hand. And he learned you know, something different than that as the story goes on. Um, but you do wonder what does he want? Does, does he want this Ursat's loyalty from people who don't really believe it, or is he just like being a bully? Or I don't know what he's doing. But when I when we hear it in retrospect and look back on Babylon, you kind of think about Ozymandias, the, the Shelley poem that's in the front of the bulletin. You know, I'm Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Uh, but this is on the pedestal of the huge statue that for years has been rotting in the desert sands, broken down. We say, yeah. For us to say, you don't bow down to an idol like that, sounds easy. I'm sure it's extremely hard for them because nobody else believed what they believed. Everybody thought they were weird for the uh, line they were drawing in the sand about. So, this is one, one reason that, um, is an aside, but why Christians value religious freedom so much is because we think true religion is to love God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you can't compel anybody to love God from their heart. No matter how many guns you have or how much torture you use, you could never compel what the Christian faith is after. And so, we believe and prize religious freedom. And we think that if you get us a level playing field, the gospel does great. You know, that the message of hope in Jesus is really persuasive. But this idea of we're going to compel you to bow down, you know, is indissimal to anything about uh, biblical faith, too. So their answer to Nebuchadnezzar was pretty bold, right? I mean, this kind of thing. Why, if you didn't like prepare notes beforehand, how how would you come up with such a great answer? <laughs> they did at the moment, you know. We don't have to answer you, Nebuchadnezzar. If it's true, God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if it not, if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we won't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And what they're really saying is, there's somebody that we love more and fear more than you. There's somebody we're scared of than we are of you. Um, you know, it sort of feels like when you're trying to sweat a witness on a TV show about the mafia, and they're like, you know, I'm scared of going to jail, but I'm way more scared of what they'll do to me if I rat. <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, well, it's a nice statue, don't get me wrong, and we're scared of furnaces, seriously, but we're scared of someone else more, right? There's someone who's more impressive in our eyes than you, and therefore we can't bow down to your eyes. And uh, so... And this isn't just because they're super courageous people. I mean, probably they are. But it's not like, you know, God rewards the super brave and courageous. But these are people who have just been around the God of Israel and steeped in His Word and His worship enough that they're just more afraid of Him than they are of Nebuchadnezzar. In some ways, it's not because they're courageous, it's because they're chickens. <laughs> like we're... It's our fear that drives us to fear God more than we fear you. Um, of course, that's attached to the tremendous deep love God has for us too, which Nebuchadnezzar has nothing 
uh, to offer and compare with. So that idea that you can stand up in an intimidating situation, you know, it really comes not from strength of character. It comes from fear of God, being convinced that he loves you and is uh, more terrifying than your threats in the world. A famous martyrdom in England in uh, the 1550s, uh, Latimer and Ridley were being burned at the stake in, o- in Oxford. And uh, I don't know if you've heard the speech, but uh, Latimer says to Ridley, just as they're about to be killed, he says, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. He said, uh, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Everybody said, you're, put, you're about to light me on fire. And I'm more scared of somebody else than you. Which is pretty impressive and pretty beautiful. And it kind of leads to the last point. That it's okay if you feel odd and get treated badly because of the lines you have to draw because of your faith. Um, It's kind of normal in the life of a believer that you're going to endure some opposition because of your faith. And that's what they found out here. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert for next week. But... Uh, this doesn't go well for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do get thrown in the furnace. But they get miraculously delivered from it, too. It's a pretty astounding story. But, um, but most people don't get delivered. Right? Most of the time, the threats that are levied against us get carried out. Uh, the history of the church is the history of a lot of martyrs who were not delivered at the last moment by the fourth man in the fire and the miracles we'll read about next week, but who just died. For their faith. And um, that's supposed to be normal in our thinking. It's a little hard when you get treated as well as we get treated all the time in the U.S. Um, but martyrdom's a reality in the world for a lot of Christians today still. Uh, they said more Christians in the last century were martyred than in, than in all of the previous centuries combined in the Christian faith. So it's not uh, just past tense. It's just pretty far separated from us most days. Uh, but Jesus said this. He said, as the Father sent me into the world, so I'm sending you into the world. And you should expect kind of to be treated like I got treated. Like the way I accomplished my mission in the world was through my self-sacrificial death for you. And the way you're going to go advance my mission in the world is through your self-sacrificial death for other people. Is to go and lay down your life for other people. Um, The most pivotal event in the history of Christianity is... Uh, Jesus Christ was murdered by the empire. So that is kind of a framing uh, view of what the life of a Christian is going to be. Right? We're, we're never going to be in favor uh, with the nations of the world. We're always going to be aliens and exiles and feel a little odd wherever God puts us. Uh, even if we really like the place that he puts us, this is how his kingdom advances. That's how it works. And so if you're getting treated a little badly and you're starting to feel like a weirdo and odd because you're a Christian, well, nothing's probably wrong. (laughs) That's the way it's supposed to work, what it says. That's why they say in church history classes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There's a Romanian pastor named Joseph San. Uh, He was there in the 80s under Ceausescu and you know, they were cracking down pretty hard because there was kind of a religious revival stirring up in the country uh, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and um, they were trying to crack down on it. And Tom was a uh, pretty notorious pastor there, and he got hauled in by the secret police, and they were threatening him, telling him not to preach anymore. 
and uh, threatening to kill him. And he, you know, another speech where you think, how do you do this without writing it down? But he said, this is how I see your situation. He says, your supreme weapon uh, at your disposal is killing me. My supreme weapon and what I'm trying to do is dying. He said, um, my tapes are all over this country. Ask your parents what a tape is. My tapes are all over this country. And, um, and if you kill me, you will sprinkle them with my blood. And suddenly people are going to listen to him closely because they're going to say, he meant this. He, like, he died to defend what he says on his tapes. He says, if you kill me, I will conquer this country. So go ahead. Boom. <laughs> and they let him go. <laughs> they turned him loose because what he said made sense, right? So, um, but yeah, that's our weapon. <laughs> to, coerce, to coerce belief in the world, our weapon is to sacrificially lay down our lives uh, in the way Jesus has for us. It's a weird, it's a weird plan, but it's how... Jesus has become the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. It's through self-sacrificial death. We don't get much opposition here. I was talking to my mother in the car the other day about we don't face much persecution. and She really implied, I thought kind of nastily, that if I was a better Christian, I would probably face more persecution. <laughs> That's how it sounded to me. So, you know, you might miss a party. You might miss out on a job. Somebody might laugh at you a little bit, but that's about as bad as it gets for us most of the time. Right? I mean, it's pretty soft here, really. But it's still good for you to feel odd sometimes. Um, I mean, don't go looking for it. I know you know people. There's an old Far Side cartoon with Gary Larson, Patrick Henry as a boy, and he's standing up at the table and he says, give me the potatoes or give me death. You know, like... The personality of somebody who is always ready uh, to climb onto the scaffold as a martyr for anything. Which I, I used to be more. I, I took a spiritual gifts test uh, many years ago. I don't know who would put this on a spiritual gifts test. But you know, like you fill out the form, and at the end it spits out, oh, this is probably what your gift is. Mine was martyrdom. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's not a gift. <laughs> and, but I'll, part of that was just I loved the, the prickly, itchy part and trying to pick a fight. Out of faith, it made me feel spiritual. It made me feel superior, I think. And either Christian maturity or waning testosterone has changed that in me. <laughs> and uh, uh, now I hate the part where we have to draw lines. I'm really kind of disappointed in myself to have changed this way, but it's true. I, 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 I really would prefer to go along to get along now in ways that I never would have. Um, but no matter what your temperament is, you know, how much fight you have and how much flight you have, your prior loyalty to Jesus is going to mean there are lines that are drawn in your life that are going to make you feel weird to the people around you and make you feel like an oddball and an exile and a resident alien and the stuff that Jesus said we're going to feel like if we follow him in the world. Um, and that's going to happen because you're not home yet. And you're not going to be home. You're not going to fit until you're in the new creation that Jesus finishes. Uh, in the meantime, it's okay to feel a little bit odd. Let's pray.